Welcome to Discourse, an original GBC podcast that explores multiple perspectives to think deeply and connect honestly with each other. I'm Anne Song. And I'm Sarika Narayan So Sarika, I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. Just curious how your week was, as well as if you ate anything delicious. Mm-hmm. Actually, I stopped by the Chef on the Run on Wednesday. Oh, nice. Yeah, after class. Good news. They are now taking debit and credit, so oh, you don't amazing. have to stop at the ATM. So I was eyeing the orange chiffon cake. Oh my gosh, it sounds delicious. Um, but now I have these nut allergies and apple allergies. So oh. I decided to settle on some butterscotch crunch chocolates. Mm. It's kind of like score, um, but obviously so much better. I um, mean, it's dark chocolate on the outsides. It's extremely good. Um, and then I picked up a box of cookies. Nice. Um, I, I probably should have asked, but they had almonds in it, so I couldn't eat it. But I took it over to my tutoring students, and they gobbled them up, especially the ones with, um, they look sort of like Linzer cookies. Okay. Yeah, so they have the strawberry jam inside. And this is all made by George Chef's. Brown Pastry. Wow. Yeah, at Chef on the Run. Yeah, I should check but it I out. Know that, yeah, I know that even if you go and you pick it up and you can't eat it right away, Mm-hmm. Um, I was told by some students of mine in my first semester that you can just freeze it and it keeps really well. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Anne? What did you get up to this week? Anything good? Um, I don't know if I had anything like particularly delicious. Oh. <laughs> but I do want to say that chocolate is now on sale now that Valentine's is over. Oh my gosh. So for all the single ladies out there, if you didn't get any chocolates, you know where to go. I'll be at Shoppers. <laughs> So let's get started. Mm-hmm. Um, last week, do you mind just reminding readers, just summing up, what did we cover? Yeah, so last week we talked about Solal Ho's 2014 essay called Craving the Other, One Woman's Beef with Culture Appropriation and Cuisine. She essentially views uh, the chef as this kind of, we, co- we, we, we created this term, the chef colonizer, and she's looking at the ways in which, um, you know, particularly white chefs are going around collecting and cataloging food items from all sorts of cultures and in many ways ending up essentializing these cultures. So yeah, I think we had a pretty decent conversation for listeners who have not tuned into our first part of Don't Shame My Food. Please do that. Sarika, do you want to introduce to us Ruth Tam's essay? Because we didn't get the chance to talk about it last week. Of course. Um, So Ruth Tam's essay was written in 2015, and it's titled, How it feels when white people shame your culture's food, Mm -hmm. then make it trendy. Um, And essentially, what Tam is doing is explaining to her reader, her audience, um, exactly what it feels like as a Asian American Mm -hmm. to, in your childhood growing up, be scorned and uh, made ashamed mm-hmm. um, of your food, your culture's food. But then when you grow up, you see that, that same food um, on these, uh, you know, finely plated uh, restaurants, trendy restaurants, um, and feeling a sense of, you know, discomfort. Yeah, so it's becoming trendy now and it's becoming more like a food porn object. Totally. Totally. 
So, Sarika, before we jump into what we both appreciated and what we found problematic about Tam's piece, I just want to draw our attention to the title. Um, and it's as you read it right now, how it feels when white people shame your culture's food. So she uses the term explicitly white people. And it's something that we've been doing, too, in our episodes. Uh, we refer to you know, white Canadians or white people, uh, etc. Is that... Uh, problematic that we do that I, I think we should talk about this a little bit before we go into it deeper and continue to use this term is it in some ways uh, reverse racism I'm so glad that we're addressing this Anne um, okay so in short no I don't think that using the term white is reverse racism I don't think that using the term black is racism and if someone refers to me as Asian I don't think that's racism either I think it's a lot about like intent um, and you know to be frank, um, you know, I'm a bit surprised when people are bothered by the term white, or if they're not bothered, they're surprised or even offended. Because to me, it's just another race. And, you know, okay, to explain that, for me, race is normal. I've always been aware of my race. I've always been made aware of my race. And, you know, we're both people of color. So perhaps to some extent, you know, I take our routine conversations about race for granted. I assume that most people are aware. Um, but I have been, I have learned that because of the way our society is structured and designed, white is often, without it being said, situated as the norm. Maybe some white people are just not aware of their race and so they are bristled or they're offended by the, by the use of it. Um, or if it's not offense, it's more like, well, I don't see race because race isn't real. And it's like, yeah, okay, of course, race is a social construct. But taking a colorblind approach, that's really dangerous. Because when you take a colorblind approach, you're basically saying that you're not going to recognize the fact that we're all dealt a different set of cards or set of advantages or disadvantages in life. And that's not fair. That's unrealistic. It's like, that's not that's not how it is. I'm echoing actually what Denise Balkasun, mm -hmm. um, a journalist for the Globe and Mail, um, and actually she also came out with a podcast for the Globe and Mail called Color Code with Hannah Sung. Um, and she talks about in her October 2016 essay, whiteness is a racial construct. Yeah. It's time to take it apart. She says exactly this. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I want to echo that uh, sentiment as well, that whiteness, uh, white people are just another racialized group like the rest of us. Absolutely. And if we don't refer to that it, um, as a, in a kind of racialized sense, then whiteness almost becomes the norm and the standard. Right. Yeah. And it's as if race is something that everyone else experiences, but white people don't which is problematic. Totally. And it, I think in many ways, that sort of equation almost creates a, a stratification. Yeah, like a hierarchy a hi of right. who's then norm and standard and then who's everyone else who's racialized. Absolutely. But that's problematic. And it's one of the reasons why we actively say whiteness or white people and why our authors are also referring to white people as white people is to create this kind of almost more equal lateral level where we're saying 
and I don't mean equal as in like obviously there's are there are privileges depending on the cards you're dealt right and what what color skin you are uh, you are born into but by constantly recognizing and labeling whiteness for whiteness it is a way to say to decentralize whiteness and to say whiteness is a racial construct just like all these other racialized constructs absolutely right does that right. so it takes down the hierarchy in some ways because you're decentering it right is now, what I'm it's, to say. now it's yeah i totally understand what you're saying i mean i can understand why you know these invisible privileges and unearned benefits to quote uh Balkasun, why it makes people uncomfortable mm-hmm. um but it's a reality you know in many ways it's it's like beauty privilege mm-hmm. beautiful people do walk through life a little bit easier I, I would say so, yeah. yeah. And the same way white people do walk through life, very different experiences and a lot more advantages than someone who's not. And so to not claim that whiteness is in some ways to reject white privilege. So that's why I think we we name it, we call it that, and I think it's also important that, we, I mean, we all do, we, we should. Absolutely. Refer to whiteness as whiteness. Right. So it's absolutely no, it's not to say someone should be ashamed or guilty. It's more of an awareness factor that I think we're trying to um, get at. Not at all to shame our our, our listeners or our students or our, our colleagues or friends. Not at all. Okay, Anne, just one other point. To add to the dangers of not using the term white... I think it's also incredibly dangerous because it can create a sense of apathy, which is to say, you know, when people don't care. Um, so if you act like race or being white doesn't exist, you're essentially saying that in turn, racism doesn't exist. And like we can we can both step back and say like, wow, you're basically saying that people are not being oppressed. People are not being discriminated against. And people are not being denied the same opportunities just because of their race. So we can't take a colorblind approach because these are realities. And frankly, apathy or ignorance, it makes you complicit in racism. Maybe you're not actively a racist, but you're also not recognizing people's pain. Okay, Sarika, so let's get into Tam's piece. What did you appreciate and what did you find problematic? Yeah, um, I mean, I, th- I mentioned this last time. I was mm-hmm. pretty open about the fact that I actually really appreciated Tam's essay a lot more than Ho. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, Ho was, was really intelligent and very... Um, striking. Striking, <laughs> very clever with her language. Um, but in many ways, you have to be a very curious reader. You have to want to learn. Mm-hmm. And you have to be sort of sophisticated. Um, whereas, in, yeah. in know, order to digest her piece. In order to, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a crunchy, it's a crunchy text. Um, whereas Tam is much more palatable, right? Yeah. Her tone is not nearly as aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to target an audience that is doing this cultural appropriation, they need to, they need to be able to understand what you're saying. Um, and I and I found Tam much more easier to understand with her tone, especially. Um, and I think that she really does achieve this with her storytelling. Yeah. Um, so particularly in paragraphs one and two, mm-hmm. she begins by telling readers um, about her her comfort food, 
Yeah, her father's now lamb. Her father's yep. now lamb. Um, and that process. And she says, um, you know, quote, although it takes the better part of a day to prepare, his Cantonese braised brisket stew always soothes my stomach and my soul. Mm-hmm. End quote. So immediately she's, it's such a relatable sort of story or entry point, and she's associating um, the now lamb with uh, home, um, and not just her stomach. You know, it's not just like a, a temporary hunger that's being satisfied, but like her soul is being fed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just thought that was a really great way to to explain and to to make that empathic bridge, to bridge with empathy. Yeah. Whereas, like, as we talked about with Ho, uh, she doesn't do that, right? Like, she is angry. Of right, rightly so, by the way. Absolutely. I, ha- I think she has every right to be mad. And, and her tone is aggressive where she's saying, this is what's wrong with the chef colonizer or the cultural appropriation of Asian dishes. On the other hand... Tam is very much telling us an intimate, personal story of her dishes. So it's a totally different take, right? So like, yeah, you're right. It's a lot more um, accessible and something relatable to most 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 readers. Sorry. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And it, just to add to that, I think that you know when we think about the word cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. culture is such a broad term. Yeah. But once you have a story, it shows the individual's um, identification or or deep connection to that food, mm-hmm. right? And this is another thing that's so different with um, between Tam's approach and Ho's is that in many ways Ho others her own Vietnamese dishes because she's so far assimilated that she has this. You know, she goes through in the beginning of her paragraphs, paragraph one and two, and she's talking about how, like, she herself does not understand Vietnamese food. Right. Right. She does not understand the Vietnamese roots. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, uh, we have a writer, uh, Ruth Tam, she fully embraces her roots and talks about it in such a personal way that, again, so much more relatable. Absolutely. And it's not to say that she doesn't experience uh, no shame at all. You know, she does say, like, um, quote, I tried to pretend um, and that she was, quote, mortified. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also recognizes that the smell of her food is not a stench. Right. Right. She she even uses words like scent and perfume in paragraph four. Mm-hmm. But that's always coupled with the shame of, of what other people have said is, you know, quote, Chinese grossness or, quote, stench. So you, you you really see how conflicted and ambiguous she is about food and yeah. but also like how deep it is for her. Yeah. So Sarika, you are saying that her tone is very different from Ho's. So we established that Ho's tone is quite aggressive. What would you call Tam's tone then? Um I would definitely call it conciliatory okay right she's trying to reconcile with the reader and with people who have maybe overlooked her Mm -hmm. whereas ho was much more um she alienates her reader Mm -hmm. right she's not trying to build those bridges right okay that's interesting so okay so her 
Tam's storytelling, her narratives help create this conciliatory uh, tone where she's able to build kind of a bridge of empathy with her readers. What about her language? Do you think her language, I know you just mentioned right now um, her use of the terms scent and perfume in paragraph four. Is there anywhere else that you see her language participate in the formation of conciliatory uh, tone? Yeah, um, actually, in paragraph 20, mm-hmm. um, it's near the end almost, but she actually speaks directly to her reader. Um, she says, um, you know, fashionable food from foreign cultures may satisfy a temporary hunger. So she recognizes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we have these human desires, these human needs, hunger. But she says, quote, if you're trying it for shallow reasons, you'll be culturally unfulfilled in the long run yeah right and i think that that she's just she's trying to explain yeah she's not she's saying in the most honest way possible what she needs to say without being accusatory that's a great way of saying it yeah Yeah. she's not pointing fingers but she's saying look appropriation goes so far it's not it's not the same thing as appreciation you're going to be unfulfilled this is like kind of you're this like hunger you have but it's such a superficial such a shallow way of taking on quote-unquote ethnic dishes absolutely and to add to that it almost feels like when we read it out loud Mm -hmm. it feels like tam is giving her reader advice yeah like you'll be culturally unfulfilled like just so you know Mm -hmm. and even near the very end in paragraph 24 she says my dad's now lamb is not gross but Mm. I never wanted to be given the, quote, fad treatment. You should try it the way he likes to prepare it. After he blanches the cow stomach, adds the bag of spices, and lets it cook for hours. Yeah. You know, she she ties it back up. It's so unified to mm-hmm. her, her story. And she's like, she's almost inviting the reader into her home. Yeah, and it's a very intimate thing Absolutely. that she's inviting us into, right? Like, letting us walk into her father's preparation of this intricate, complex, and nuanced meal. Yeah. And actually, that goes back to tone in a sense because it's not just the stories and, and, and her the language, but it's also specifically the figurative language here. Right. All throughout her piece, she really helps us to use our senses to create this mental picture of her father actually doing the cooking, right? Like even just the quote that you read right now, after he blanches the cow stomach, adds a bag of spices and lets it cook for hours. It's so much easier to digest. Yeah, and stomach. Yeah. So that's near the end of the essay. What about near the beginning, like in the actual storytelling? Yeah. What, what what words or poetic or figurative language struck you? Well, if you want to look at paragraph two, this is where she talks about, again, going, same story actually, on her father's uh, uh, creation of Naolam. I, I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> but... She has this beautiful uh, alliteration at the end of paragraph two there. He ties it into a neat bundle and lets me hold it to my nose before dropping it into the rich broth in which brisket, tripe, and tendon simmer for hours until tender. 
tripe tendon tender. I mm. love that. Like I love that repetition. And you know, she's describing how she's you know holding this to her nose and while she's doing that like we can also visualize the scent the feeling of the tendon and the tenderness you could almost in so many like touch scent um sight you could you could perfectly imagine the setting and it's so intimate almost so intimate that you don't even know if you're like intruding absolutely yeah so going back to the conciliatory uh, tone you were talking about it's her language, her figurative language also adds to it, I think. Speaking to the reader, her voice, and then that figurative language, the imagery that accompanies it. Mm -hmm. So, and just one last thing that I want to add before we move into our thematic question. Mm -hmm. Um, Something, you know, one of the main reasons I really did appreciate Tam was she didn't just have a conciliatory tone. At the end of her essay, she gave us role models. She gave society role models uh, to look up to. So she didn't just present the problem of cultural appropriation. She gave us suggestions about, you know, if you don't want to appropriate and you actually do want to appreciate, you need to look towards people like Monica Bide Mm -hmm. or Mangchi Mm -hmm. or uh, Lucky Peach. The magazine. Uh, the magazine, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think that's so useful for readers because, you know, Ho alienates you. Whereas right. Tam says, come into my home with my story. Yeah. And if you don't want to come to my home, here's where you can go. Like role models. Absolutely. And, and here's some solutions so right. that you can actually genuinely appreciate other people's culture without appropriating. So, Sarika, I'm going to close our podcast with one final thematic question. When we objectify food, are we also then objectifying the people behind a certain cultural dish? That is such a challenging question, Anne. Um, Challenging because, let me explain. You know, I think that if we objectify food, we are, you know, that is what cultural appropriation is. Um, and I think, I mean, I have made sense of cultural appropriation as a microaggression, which is to say it's offensive. However, it's unintentionally offensive on the part of the offender. But I do think that it's worth saying that, you know, if you treat food like an object, in other words, like a souvenir that you pick up, an artifact, you are objectifying the people potentially who eat that food and who we associate with that food, right? Um, And I think that Tam, through her descriptive language and her stories, she really does show that to us, right? If we, we, as she mentions, um, many American uh, restaurants do, treat uh, other cultures' foods as food tourism, discount food tourism, Um, We are effectively simply being voyeurs. We are seeing it. But seeing something is not actually truly engaging with and getting to know that culture. What about you, Anne? I want to answer this uh, using Ho's piece since we talked about Tam quite a bit. 
uh, in Ho, uh, in Ho's essay, in paragraph 11, she actually closes that paragraph with a thought about appreciation. And she says, you know, it's great that there are some people, some chefs out there, and some cookbooks out there that are trying to be different, trying to really show appreciation. But she says here, quote, but that kind of appreciation certainly doesn't seem to have advanced their understanding of the Asian American experience beyond damaging and objectifying generalities, end quote. So, yeah, I think what Ho is essentially saying there is, yeah, if you use and eat someone's uh, someone else's cultural dish as an entry point, but then do not make the effort to really understand the the various hardships, the various journeys, the various stories, these very intimate stories behind uh, these groups and behind these individuals. For Ho, it's very problematic, and I agree. I have to say, I have. It's it, she's right. If you objectify the food and you just look at it as this kind of essentialized thing, then the people that are linked and identified with that food are also going to be essentialized as these things, right? Absolutely. One thing and one thing only, these stereotypes. Right. And in some ways, it's it's disingenuous. You know, yeah. I always tell my students at least, you know, do make an effort to at least make friends with or on on social media to to ha- follow people who are different than you who don't look like you who don't look like you who who think differently from you right because how else can you truly understand another person if you're not actually their friend mm-hmm. yeah and i think you know ho says it perfectly right she actually calls it in paragraph Three, she refers to this as like, you know, people go back to their, quote, racially homogenous group of friends, end quote. And yeah, like I have to say I agree. And this is not just, I'm not just speaking to white people. No, no. I'm speaking to all people, including myself. Absolutely. We being responsible, as part of being responsible citizens of the world, we do need to make an effort to become genuine friends with people of all backgrounds. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, because how else are you to understand someone beyond these generalities or these objective, uh, objectified generalities uh, if, you, if you don't make that effort? Okay, so that brings us to a close. Um, and thank you again so much for thinking so deeply about Tam's essay with me and connecting really honestly uh, with me. And I'm also sure... Uh, with our listeners. Yeah, thank you, Sarika, for this great and very productive conversation. I always walk away feeling like I learned something new. Oh. Uh, so now we're off to get some chocolate. On yeah? sale, of course. Yeah. <laughs> All right, peace.